0: Uh, welcome back to sermon notes this is Garland and Clark um, and we don't usually have it just be you and me because uh, uh, sometimes we have a hard time getting going and not getting through it without <laughs> ruining this entire thing um, it's so, anyway, all so funny to you I know, it really is <laughs> so we're in uh first Peter chapter 3 we're continuing this um, this st- series that we've been in um, all the way back since Memorial Day, and uh, we're, we're right in really the um, kind of the concluding section, the next two chapters of this big middle part of the letter. Um, and so you've got one of the most, what's the word we want to use here, interesting challenging. Oh, it's interesting. Uh, multifaceted. Those are all I'm trying to use positive words. Yeah. Um, difficult to understand, uh, filled with, uh, <laughs> with question marks, yeah. even as you study it passages in the new Testament. Can I tee this up with any more drama yeah. Clark? We're in first Peter three, eight through the end of the chapter. So, uh, in a quick, you know, maybe minute or two, mm-hmm. just not really outline form, just kind of what's, what's the topic, what's being addressed in this.
1: So he's moved from what submission to unjust authority can look like in different places related to government, in the home, in what we might consider in the marketplace or the workplace or the home from a slave master perspective. And we're moving into this application to all of those who are considered exiles, um, believers, and we're leaning into this idea of suffering and actually this, this idea of suffering is part of the big theme that he's leaning into. And actually, in your teaching next week, Garland, you're going to have to navigate some of that as yep. well. And so, you know, as I've been studying this, and there are some problem things that we've got to work through here, but it is interesting if you, if you allow Peter's argument to help define and interpret for you, um, it does clear up some things in this text. Because of where he's going and why he's speaking to them and the way he's communicating these ideas, and so I think it's, it's we just we've got to understand he's he's writing to them to assure them that the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and the resurrection and even here we'll see his ascension a little bit is enough to push them through the suffering um, that they're experiencing as exiles. Um, in the current Roman world that they find themselves in. And so he's focused on their character. He's focused on their witness. And then we'll see the victory of Jesus in this. And so um, so if you keep all that in, in mind as we move through this, Carlin, I think some of these things take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And some can be little fun asides that, that those of our that are listening right now These are great examples of how you can go to other passages of Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture, consider other texts that are historical but maybe not biblical, and um, in terms of your study. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. Yeah. So big picture, because we're going to get into some of these weeds in a minute, just to Mm -hmm. let people at
0: least get a little bit of exposure to them. Um, I think you're giving us a good hedge, which is, Yes, there are some interesting, uh, fun discussions in this yeah. passage, but don't miss the forest for the trees. You know that's the, right. The forest is still the same idea that he's been talking about. And if you want to look grammatically at it, um, the finally. So all of you, this is again, you know, what's its antecedent? Um, because there's actually not a verb supplied in verse eight in in the original language. There's not a verb in verse eight, um, and so it's rooting rooting back up. Through, we might, we Maybe might all say, the way to chapter yeah, two. two twelve, and yeah. then again two seventeen. I think he's rooting all of this together. So literally, verse eight reads: "Finally, all of you, like-minded, and you know, sympathetic, and brother, brotherly, loving." And so, without that verb, then we get a verb in nine. You know, not repaying. All of this is just describing mm-hmm. what he's already unpacked before. And then again, seeing the forest, there are two commands, we might say, imperatives in the passage that are very clear grammatically. Um, and <laughs> there's a lot of things in here that read like imperatives, but two that are not in the quote from Isaiah, uh, from Psalm 34 there. And yeah. it's right here, don't fear, mm-hmm. which it could be a, 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 an imperative. It could be a different verb form. I think it's an imperative. So do not fear. Um, and then... And that's in verse, the verse middle 14, of verse 14. Yeah, verse 14. Yeah. And then, in your hearts, revere. So it's almost yeah. as if... Um, they're, st- they're still suffering. Hey, Which, but by don't the way, that, that
1: rhymes, too. What did it? Don't fear and in your hearts revere. Hey! Yeah. I mean, that's like it's a, a preacher. Good, yeah, That's a good way to <laughs> so, remember for those listening um, out there.
0: Yeah, there's yeah. your forest, in a sense. Yeah, is that's good. When you revere Jesus as king, it's going to put you at odds with the rest of the culture that reveal, reveres a different person as king, namely Caesar. And when they come after you, uh, don't fear, but keep doing good and be ready. I mean, it, it, that's, yeah. the, that's the forest. Okay. And let's, it,
1: it, it sets you up to be free... In his case, and he uses this word in both senses. To, um, if you want to be blessed, then be a blessing to your enemies. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was going to ask you that before we get into. The one, I, mean, I was going to ask
0: that before we dive into, I guess, yeah. some of these more difficult things. Um, I I somewhat teed it up last week, but I think that verse nine. I'm just going to ask you just to, in, a, in a minute or two to give some pastoral insight. I think in in our world today. Oftentimes, you have. Uh, it seems as if, especially in the political spectrum, especially in our political discourse, social discourse, it is let's fight fire with fire. Mm-hmm. Let's return um, bluster with bluster, insult for insult. Um, just pastor us for a minute on verse wow. nine, because I don't think in the ch- I'm hearing even more in the church this sort of language of we better, you know, let's get ready for the fight. We got to come strong. And I ha- I'm having a hard time, honestly, as we're reading First Peter squaring any of that with mm-hmm. what seems like Peter has in mind, and I think his context is much harsher than ours. So just, yeah. I'm teeing you up for a moment here. You know, just speak to my heart, I guess, in that. Maybe somebody mm-hmm. else is listening.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's instructive to remember who our enemy is. And ultimately, if you consider um, Ephesians 6, 12, if you actually consider as we move through chapters four and five of first Peter, we have a enemy, his name is Satan or the devil. He's like a roaring lion. And so there's these principalities and spirits, um, and powers of the air that are behind what's happening in the world that is pushing against those who are trying to walk in righteousness, um, in their context. And so, um, now some of those that are, um, that that are pushing against them are in human form and so they feel that in a very real way it could be a roman guard it could be someone in their family um human manifestations of that i guess if you will but i think it's instructive pastorally to remember that you know behind the scenes we're up against a much greater enemy than the person across the table or the person across the row if you will politically and in the big picture of things, Jesus' mission is that he's trying to win them over with this thing called grace that comes through the cross and the resurrection and through his victory. And so that would be my first thing is to remind ourselves the reason he can say this, he understands the bigger enemy, and the enemy is not the person. The enemy is the person. Uh, the, the, the enemy um, is, is something much bigger than that. And so if you, if you can remember that, it, it, someone once told me, they said, I know that my heart is off when lost people make me mad, not sad. That's good. And that was always helpful for me in my prayer life when I was frustrated with someone who seemed to be persecuting me or pushing against me. And so I'll leave it at that. Yeah. But that's what I struggle with. Yeah, that's sure. helpful.
0: That's and, and I think that's worth even spending some time uh, – you know, in, in small group and discipleship, what does that look like for a Jesus follower to interact? Even as our culture begins to maybe uh, send more hostility our way. Um, I think this is going to continue to be instructive for us. Now, um, the, uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is, uh, this, uh, chapter three, verse 15 mm-hmm. and 16. And I'm assuming we're gonna get some time to talk about that on Sunday. So, uh, yeah. what happens, and this is going to drop us now into the hard stuff in verse 18, Mm -hmm. Um, He appeals to Jesus again. He's done this numbers of times in this letter. In fact, it's like he can't help himself. He knows he's giving them a difficult ask. He knows what he's asking of them is something no one wants to do. Suffer. Well, face uh, face hostility uh, and then repay that with good. (laughs) Like nobody wants that (laughs) message in the ancient or modern world. So he keeps appealing to the fact that, hey, that's what Jesus did. And by the way, that's how Jesus won. That is our way. That's the way we win. And when he does those appeals, he gets real wordy and he starts saying stuff that is very beautiful and amazing. Yeah. And in this particular instance, he's done it in chapter two. He's doing it again here. But here, he's going to say some stuff that I think when we read it in the modern world, it creates some points of contention among Christians and even just maybe not even contention, just. Points of interest from any reading it. So if you're driving and listen to this, you might have to pull over later or check it out later. But in (laughs) in verses 18 to 22, he's going to mention um, Jesus being made alive in the spirit, making proclamation to the, quote, imprisoned spirits, to the ones who were disobedient in Noah's Mm -hmm. day. Okay, that's that's strange. Then he's going to make this statement, verse 21. um, He says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you which I think causes some concern for yeah. uh, some Christians or some disagreement on how to interpret that. Um, and then he concludes it with this picture of Jesus' victory as ruling and reigning. So, okay, this is sermon notes. This is where you go cause, uh, to get some of the, the deeper insight on some of this stuff, because it may not make the sermon, I'm guessing, you're not devoting 23 minutes in the sermon no. to uh, the imprisoned spirits and Tartarus. So help us out here.
1: Yeah, that's good. Good stuff, Garland. <laughs> I think if you... If you allow the for Christ um, in 18, and then you see the way 22 ends, um, you see how suffering leads to victory, and it was the way of Jesus. And so for me, part of the hermeneutic here is to allow the, that, those sandwich clauses, if you will, those pieces of the bread, to inform the middle section where we have some issues. And sometimes in my um, when I'm studying, I'll just make a, a note. I'll write out a word, and I wrote the word atonement. Um, This is a key atonement kind of passage, and it would be partnered with lots of other passages related to atonement that you might find in in Romans, um, if you will. And then I wrote the word baptism out there, and those are questions I would have. What do we learn about the atonement and baptism? But um, we've got to let what Jesus has done on the cross and the resurrection and the victory as he would ascend to the right hand of the Father I think it has to color the rest of the passage. right? Um, because he's, he's using these two things not to stir up controversy about um, where we think Jesus went during that time or to stir up controversy about what we think baptism is or isn't, what it, what it represents, but actually to prove the victory of Jesus to those who are in exi- exile as an encouragement for them to persevere in it because they share in the victory. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and give that away right out of the gate. That's good. That's okay. helpful. I don't think it negates the opportunity for us to deal with some of these hard things. And so um, I think the first thing we have to figure out here is what do they mean by put to death in the flesh, or made alive by the Spirit? I think our tendency is to draw all these harsh lines. Does that mean that he was, you know, he was put to death in the body as man, but then he was made alive by the Spirit in, in You know in his divinity if you will um as i understand this garland you can speak into this too the the viewer that 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 i'm most comfortable with understanding is he's there's two realms um he lived in the incarnation so that he could be an appropriate atoning sacrifice verse 18 he was died in our he identified with us in the flesh was put to death in his flesh but in his glorification he was made alive in the spirit, there's an earthly or a heavenly realm that he also lives in, as well. And so, I think that word "realm" for me captures what Peter's trying to do with this. So, would would you agree with that, or do you have other views that you've leaned into over the years? No, I think that I think that summarizes it. Just you know, I and tend, I am summarizing.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I tend to go back to grammar. You know, eighteen. He's we have a clause. Um, that is introduced in 18, so it's a content clause, uh, to, that you suffer for doing, uh, for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong, mm-hmm. because, it's being translated by the NAS as for, uh, but it's a content clause, because, and he's going to give us, this. a lot of scholars think this might be an early Christian creed in some way, a form yeah. of a creed or something like that, because it has a certain repetition, so just, just grammatically, Christ died um, once on behalf of sin the righteous for the unrighteous. And then we have a purpose statement. So in, in order that clause or in NASB is doing so that yep. he might bring us to God, a re- very regular henna clause, henna, he might bring us to glo- God. Henna is a way to say in order that with two participles, these two participles explain uh, how that was accomplished. And so the Death bringing the us to, yeah, dying in the flesh, dying with the flesh or in the flesh, but then uh, being made alive in the Spirit. So I think both of those are explaining how we were brought to God, and I think dissecting them apart um, in some kind of a uh, you know Christology question mark I think kind of misses, I think, the the grammatical flow that he's trying to get to. Well, and
1: some have suggested there's even a chronology here. If you work death in the flesh, his resurrection, being glorified alive in the Spirit. And then in verse 19, Mm -hmm. we're introduced to the next difficulty here. Mm -hmm. Then he went. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure how it's phrased in the original language, but in which he went in Mm -hmm. the ESV and Mm -hmm. proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, you got all kinds of options. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Grammatically, how that breaks down in 19, and we're really in the weeds now. We're talking Greek (laughs) grammar, my favorite. So two participles explain the bringing us to God being put to death and then being made alive. Then 19, it's actually what we call a relative, uh, a relative clause. So we usually introduce those with uh, who or which. Yeah. So if I say, um, that's my favorite player, um, who always comes through in the end. It's a relative clause introducing something that mm-hmm. is subordinate to uh, my favorite player in this case is this very uh, crass example I'm throwing out on the fly here. So <laughs> in which, notice the relative clause. You can even see it. In which, so which is our relative pronoun introducing a relative clause. Um, and so probably what's in in view here is the, we might say the uh, the means by which or the instrument through which he made proclamation. And mm-hmm. so in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Um, for the uber nerds out there, if you want to cross reference here, you can go to second Peter chapter two, it's verse four and five and following. Mm-hmm. And then again, in Jude, um, these general epistles at the end of the new Testament. Um, can, remember, we've already said this, they're written to a con to a community that's really struggling. Um, they're feet. They're experiencing unjust uh, suffering and persecution and hostility. And one of the things that they are being reminded, and this is happening in Second Peter and Jude, for example, is that um, God knows how to preserve his faithful remnant, and he also knows how to deal out justice. And yep. so trust him with that. That's actually the point of the Jude and Second Peter passages. Um, if you want to go do those cross-references, uh, there are some scholars that take this reference to a uh, particular um, a particular we might say location or place where uh, a particularly bad whether uh, it be Hades or Sheol. Uh, yeah, yeah in, or in second Peter it's called Tartarus. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a Greek concept of meet the lowest part of uh, hell we might say, something like that. Um, both Second Peter and Jude seem to connect it to something going on in Genesis six with the Nephilim and that whole story.
1: Yeah, it gets first, crazy. First <laughs> Timothy three sixteen, I think it uh-huh. is, has similar language. Yeah, yeah. it and gets it, wild. I'm yeah.
0: smiling as we're talking about it because <laughs> this is fun for me and no one else. Uh, you're having a good time. Oh no, so, this is it's um, fascinating.
1: And so yeah, you got to figure out the mm-hmm. the, the which, but also the who and the what. Mm-hmm. What did he proclaim? Mm-hmm. Who's he speaking to? When did it happen? Mm-hmm. There is a reference to the days of Noah. The Apostles' Creed would say he descended mm-hmm. into hell, and this is what happened mm-hmm. in that moment. And so um, definitely some, some imagery here, but he's referencing a historical event. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes this more difficult. Yeah. But part of his point is victory, if you'll let the last phrase in 22 determine kind of where we're going here, is in salvation is that God has rescued his people and been faithful to them once before, and there was judgment and there's promise of salvation executed in and through Noah for his people at one time. Mm -hmm. God does the same thing for those who are in exile or being persecuted here in a New New uh, Testament-specific situation. So I don't want us to miss that big idea as part of his point and get too lost in some of the weeds. But it is really interesting Mm -hmm. um, when you get into some of especially this phrase, um, the spirits who are in prison. Mm -hmm. um, Someone go to extra biblical sources um, like Enoch to sort through some of this. And so uh, for those of you that are uber eager to sort through some of these things, I'm not sure what chapters. I think it's like... uh, 12 through 16 in the first book of Enoch. Can you reference that, Garland? You don't, you probably have that memorized. Oh, yeah. I I do a lot of memorizing out of 1st Enoch. Yeah. (laughs) But that's where you get into the Nephilim and you get into the sons of God language and you're sorting through who are those? Are they angelic beings? Are they just, you know, people that died that day? And Jesus is just simply, um, in in an accountable way, he's preaching vindication, and that he is the righteous and the just judge. He's accomplished victory over sin, and um, so the, anyway, there's a lot of a lot of directions yeah. we could go I think, there.
0: I, again, we, we, we're in the we're in the trees. In fact, we're on like the weeds underneath the trees. But the forest of this little section is really clear though, and it's the same thing in Second Peter and the same thing in Jude. So we can be really confident. The point is, um, when it looks like those forces, those spiritual forces have have ensnared you and they're winning i think the point the reader is supposed to take is no god knows how to preserve uh, his faithful remnant even through suffering um and so he also knows how to dole out justice and so don't take it into your own hands because god knows what he's doing trust him in that look he did it with Noah, he's doing it here. I think mm-hmm. we, we got to make sure we get the point of this section. All right, last one. And if you, we're already at 20 minutes, but if you made it this far, yeah. we might as well keep going. Go. Uh, it's like Forrest Gump on his three year run here. <laughs> um, all right, one more. Verse 21. We told you this had a lot in here, Cerberus uh, listener. He says, concerning that, <laughs> whatever's going on with Noah, <laughs> he says, concerning that, um, baptism now saves you. Okay. What do we do with that, Clark? There you go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, and and I think for your small group, your men's group, uh, your community group, if you're meeting this summer, um, I think it's always fair to ask, does the Bible um, teach baptismal regeneration? Does the act in and of itself of baptism save a person from a spiritual perspective? And so that's the question that most people wrestle with when they come to this text. You might see the same wrestling happen um, as well and at the end of Mark and, and uh, towards the end of, of, of Mark chapter 16. Um, but he does say, uh, baptism, which corresponds to this. Is there a better phrasing there? That's in the ESV, yeah, which corresponds in, in, to this.
0: I'll say it, and I think it'll the, it'll, uh, the person hearing this can even hear it. Yeah. He says, which also for y'all... It's the word antitupos, antitype, a type. Yeah, um, and that's so right. it And so, you know, co- corresponding, that works really well. Um, what does the NIV do? Uh, and this water symbolizes baptism. They don't even try to deal yeah. with the word. Um, so, yes, uh, what's a, it's a type, an antitype that's of right. the thing that came before. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, our traditional understanding of baptism here at Fellowship has always been that it represents a spiritual reality that God all, all has already accomplished inside the heart when someone identifies with the death of Jesus on their behalf, with his resurrection um, through baptism as they're raised up out of the water. um, There's a spiritual cleansing that has spiritually happened. And when you identify with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, you're you're basically making a pledge. And some versions actually use the word pledge of a good conscience here. Mm -hmm. Um, That because of that truth, that baptism is this this pledge of a life that will follow this new king. And that's what some would suggest that that's all that Peter has in mind here. And he usually, he's using a historical reference. He's got a type in mind here. Baptism is a sign of an Edward change that has happened. But I do think it's much more if you're suffering in exile, you're pledging because of this identification to be a follower in a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And to live a life that is holy, as we've looked at chapters two and three.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's I actually think it's pretty clear grammatically, and even just it doesn't you have to know it's no Greek grammar to see that it's pretty clear. I think I know this is a big verse for those that might su- might suppose that baptism is a requirement for salvation. What I think he has in mind is he he brings up this uh Noah triggers something in his mind almost as the as the as the this is being uh, probably read out loud to his secretary. He, he's talking about Noah. Remember how God spared Noah in the days of Noah? He consigned those evil forces to a, to a prison. He knows how to protect his. He did so through water, remember? It's almost like it triggers in his brain. That's like, hey, that's, that's kind of like our baptism. Um, I don't think it's accidental. I don't think it's haphazard. But then notice what he does. He says, uh, you know, corresponding that now, baptism saves you. And then it's like he immediately wants to qualify that. Hey, but... Not as yeah, not some kind of dirt removal thing. That's what baptism is a Jewish tradition. That uh, if you've ever been to Israel, they've got cleansing baths all over the place, and you cleanse all sorts of stuff. You baptize all sorts of things. It's a regular thing that you do. The Pharisees get mad at Jesus because his disciples don't cleanse their hands before they ate. At one occasion, it's a ceremonial washing, and Peter following the Jesus tradition, says, no, what Jesus has done is taken a, a very regular tradition, but now said it's a one-time uh, c- cleansing of your soul. <laughs> like yeah. Jesus just said, hey, you know that thing that we do all the time? What if you can have it once, and your entire soul is cleansed your because of what spiritually I'm doing? you
1: speaking. Yeah. You're made new. You're made yeah. clean. So I think yeah. Peter's
0: taking that idea, and the language that he then qualifies as with. I think, at least for me, uh, clarifies
1: it, um, and so, it's through which I, I, I think we can't miss this mm-hmm, clause. Mm-hmm. It's actually through the resurrection mm-hmm. of Jesus yeah. Christ, and so if there's any hint that you you might think, well, this teaches some kind of regeneration through baptism, he he kind of closes the gap on that idea through the resurrection of mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah, and so yeah. ultimately, that's the power that saves.
0: Yeah, thinking about that, even from uh, I'm just thinking about it, f- just off the cuff here, through you know by means of. Uh, it's almost as if you could make this statement: if Jesus isn't resurrected, then his baptism doesn't do anything, and it doesn't it doesn't cleanse your conscience. That's right. If he is, though, now that is the only baptism that is worth anything. Um, and so yeah, well we said. have to enter into, I guess, the imagination of first century Jews uh, and now Jesus followers as they've uh, many have left Judaism or not left Judaism. They've feel like Jesus is the culmination of Judaism, Um, it's just, there's a lot in this passage. Well, and how cool is
1: the last part? (laughs) Yeah, we don't want to miss it. Jesus is victorious. It says the angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to them, to him. And so um, it feels like uh, Peter's, uh, again, he's trying to encourage those who are suffering in exile and he consistently points them to the victory of of Jesus through the resurrection. And that never gets old. Mm-hmm. And it should be our motivation as well. Yeah, Next week, my, I'm teaching that week, and it begins
0: with uh, therefore. It's going to be pointing back to that, that idea right there. So it's a great place to end it. And as always, uh, this was a, a weighty one. Clark is <laughs> wiping sweat from us for joining <laughs> us on Sermon Notes.